The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Genesis 12, excuse me, Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons 
and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of God for the people of God. Dusty, thanks for that prayer. Um, I am excited and honored to have a chance to serve the broader church in some particular ways. Um, so it's fun to celebrate that opportunity. Um, just so you guys know, uh, when something like that comes my way, when I'm asked to do something that um, is sort of a way of serving the broader church, uh, I bring that to the elders. And so we pray on that together and just say, hey, does this seem like a wise investment of who I am and my resources and my energy? Uh, and then I also ask the people in my gospel community to pray about that with me over the past few months. So there's been a few months of just sort of thinking through that. And uh, as you saw, or as Dusty said, uh, that got announced this week. And so for the next three years, I'll have the chance, in addition to serving here, to just invest more broadly in some of the work that God is doing in the church in uh, work that I'm excited to collaborate with some people on. So thanks for that opportunity. But this morning, we're going to dive into the life of Joseph. And so Genesis 37 is where we'll be. You uh, just heard it read. If you have a Bible or if you want to grab one under your seat, uh, you can go there. And um, we're going to enter back into this fabulous story that we began last week. Um, a couple of years ago, I attended a funeral for a man who had died of a, a degenerative disease. He'd kind of been battling it for a long time. Uh, he was a Christian, not a part of this church, um, but I knew him through some other connections and so attended the funeral. And um, as a way of sort of giving people a chance to share their respects and remembrances, uh, they had an open mic time at the funeral. Stepping away from the funeral story a minute, Open mic times are just rarely a good idea in general. <laughs> like not at funerals, just anywhere, right? Open mic time. Have you ever been in an open mic time where you walked away going, that was awesome? <laughs> Probably not. And here's why. Because in any room of people, you all know, there are just a few people you don't give the microphone to, right? And if you have an open mic night, guess who finds the microphone? Those people. And they always say some stuff that's either awkward or out of place or just not the right thing to say. And then we have that moment where we all go, what do we do now, right? One of the first things I train staff in here at Coram Deo is, hey, if we're leading a conference or we're doing something and you're leading a Q&A time, rule number one is you do not let go of the microphone. So you might be roving the audience and say, yes, you have a question, and then you hold the microphone out. That person's going to try to take the microphone from you. They're going to think you're offering it to them, and so they're going to reach out for it. Your job is to hold on to it. They might put their hand over your hand and like pull on it. You just act like that's the most normal thing in the world. You never let go of the mic. Why? Because if that person starts to say something weird or off topic, you just go, okay, thank you, next question, right? You don't let go of the mic. But anyways, open mic times in general, I find them to be challenging. But obviously at a funeral, this is sort of part of something we try to do to allow folks to share remembrances of people. And usually at funerals, there's a modest decorum and respect that works. And so they work a little better in that setting. Well, at this particular open mic time, um, one man, one friend of this man, described how he and some other friends had been praying for a long time that God would heal this man of the disease that he was facing. Uh, just good, godly friends who were praying for him. And then he said, and now he's in heaven and he's been healed. So 
our prayer was answered. Now, I understand what he's trying to communicate there. And theologically, I even think it holds water. Like, we understand what he's saying when he says that. But it's also one of those statements that makes Christianity seem ridiculous. And here's why. Because we all know that when those friends were praying and asking God to heal their friend, they certainly were not praying for death. They were praying for the opposite of death. And so to say that death is an answer to a prayer for healing just seems like that weird kind of doublespeak that Christians do that just doesn't make sense to people. I think it would have been more honest in that moment for that man to say, we prayed for our friend's healing, but God remained silent. It seemed that God was absent. That would have been both more honest and more biblical. Because actually the Bible is full of texts and stories where God seems absent. You might think of the story of Job. You might think of the book of Lamentations. You might think of Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or you might think of Genesis chapter 37. The most interesting feature of this chapter is that God is not mentioned even once. The narrator blanks God from the story. It's as though God doesn't exist in this story. And that in itself is an important feature of the story because what the narrator is reminding us is that in every story, there are moments where God seems absent. I mean, that's true in your story, isn't it? If you've walked with God for any length of time, here's what's true in your story. There are moments where you really sense the presence and power of God in, in unique ways. And there are also long stretches of time where it feels like God is silent, God is absent, where you perhaps wonder if God is even real. That's normal in your story. And the narrator is showing you it's normal in the story of these characters in the scriptures, including Joseph. And here's the key. The fact that God seems absent from the story doesn't mean that he is. That's the key takeaway. What you're going to see in this chapter in Genesis is that though God seems absent, he's not. God is present even in the pit. That's what we're going to learn this morning. So let's look at the text together. Um, you've already heard it read, and so I'm not going to read through all the verses again. The text basically breaks into three sections. The sending, the selling, and the sorrow. The sending, the selling, and the sorrow. So let's just dip in and look at those three sections of the text. First, the sending. Genesis 37, verse 13. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. He goes on to describe how he wandered about until he located his brothers. Now, the sending is kind of just setting up the, the main conflict of the story, which is going to come next. But I want you to notice a theme that should seem familiar 
a beloved son sent by a father to go find the lost brothers. That theme should resonate. That gets us to the selling, verse 18. The brothers, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Literally, what they say here is, here comes this Lord of dreams, this dream catcher, this dream guru. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. You may remember that in the gospel accounts, Jesus tells this parable. It's known to us or often titled in your Bible as the parable of the tenants. And the story is there's a wealthy landowner who has tenant farmers in his vineyard, and he sends his son to go check on the farmers and receive a report from them. But when the tenants find out it's the son who's coming, they say to one another, come, let us kill him. The scriptures use the exact same phrase. Jesus himself uses the exact same phrase that's right here in Genesis 37. And by the way, these are the only two places in scripture where that phrase is used. Jesus is intentionally alluding to this story, Joseph, as a paradigm for his own ministry. He is sent from the Father, but those to whom he is sent, rather than receiving him, want to kill him instead. So you know what happens. They decide, okay, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. Let's sell him instead. So this band of traders comes by on their way to Egypt, and so they sell Joseph to these slave traders. And that gets us to the last section of the text, the sorrow. Verse 32. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Notice how they don't call him our brother. They call him your son. So the level of animosity that's here. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him but he refused to be comforted. Do we see this grieving father who's reckoning with the reality that his son has apparently been torn to pieces by a wild animal? One of the things you see here, going back to our sermon from last week, is the level of deceit that's present in the family, right? I mean, you guys know that a lie told often enough and believed as true kind of has a way of becoming the truth, doesn't it? And that's what's happening in this family. These brothers, in spite of the fact that the father is mourning, he refuses to be comforted, they don't back off the story. They double down on the lie. So now Jacob believes that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal, and that's the story we're sticking with. And in the family system now, that's what counts as true, even though none of it is true. And what you're going to see is in order for them to experience the redemptive grace of God, you know, for the, in order for the grace of God to break into this story, there's going to have to come a moment where the truth is told, where the lie is destroyed, 
and where the truth comes out. And that's the moment we're waiting for that's still a few chapters ahead. But perhaps in your family, this same thing has taken place. Perhaps there's a lie that's been told often enough that we kind of just treat it as the truth. And if that's true in your family system, I want to give you freedom this morning, as we did last week, to say, you know what? It's okay to tell the truth. In fact, you have to. It's the only way to health and freedom. Now, there's a key feature of the story that's mentioned seven times in the text. Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. But that feature is the pit. Verse 24 reminds us, they threw Joseph into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. They keep referring to the pit, the pit, the pit. A pit, or a bore in Hebrew, is a cistern. It's an ancient rainwater collection system. A, a cistern is different from a well. If you're digging a well, you're digging down to find water. If you're digging a cistern, you're digging a pit to catch water as it rains. So it's catching rainwater during the rainy season, and then in the dry season, it will dry out. That's why the text tells us the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Because if you said to an ancient Hebrew reader, they threw him in a bore in a cistern, people would be like, well, did he drown? No, no, it was the dry season. There was no water in there. Okay. Now, a dry cistern obviously makes an excellent dungeon. It's great for confining people, which is why Joseph's brothers threw him into it. And interestingly, this same word, bore, is used to describe the dungeon where Joseph ends up in Egypt a couple chapters from now. Twice in his life, Joseph goes down to the pit, to the dungeon, to the depths. The writer wants you to understand Joseph is in the pit. Joseph is in the depths. Joseph is at the bottom. Have you been there? When do you remember in your life being at the lowest place? What's the deepest despair you've ever felt? What's the deepest grief you've experienced? Where's the most penetrating darkness you've been surrounded by? That's where Joseph is. And you can relate because we all have moments in life that feel like that. Maybe you're there right now. Imagine being Joseph in this story, right? You went to check on your brothers. They originally were going to plan to kill you. Then they just sold you into slavery. You're now on your way to a land you've never been to in a language that you don't speak. Your father has been told that you have died, and therefore that means ain't nobody coming looking for you. I mean, can it get any worse? Like, this is the pit, right? Think of all the bad Christian cliches this destroys. Think of all the mugs you can buy on Etsy that just get shattered by this story, right? When God closes a door, he opens a window. Not in the pit, there's no windows in there, right? God never gives you more than you can handle. I don't know, I think being sold into slavery by your own family would be more than most of us can handle. God is good all the time. True, but I bet there were moments when Joseph doubted the goodness of God. The reason Christian cliches like those fail us is because they fail to account for the pit. They fail to account for those moments in your life and mine and Joseph's where it seems like God is absent, where it seems like God isn't even showing up. 
where it seems like there is no God, and if there is a God, he must not be interested in what's happening right now. And so I want to remind you of something we said last week, and that is this, you've got to let the story develop. That's true of reading Old Testament narrative, and it's also true of reading God's work in your own life. None of you are at the end of your story yet. You're still in the middle. And in the middle of any good story, I want to remind you that it always feels, at some point, like all hope is lost. That's why you keep watching till the end of the movie. Part of what God is doing here in Genesis is teaching you to read the story of your own life the same way. If you take a snapshot of your life at any given moment, it may look like there's no evidence that God is even in the picture. It's only looking back over time that you can see God's presence in the moments where it seems like he's absent. And I think that's why, part of why the story of Joseph is in the Bible. Because what this story does is it helps us learn not to judge our lives based on one moment or one season or one episode. It teaches us that when we're trying to understand what God is up to, it takes a long time and a lot of data points. Let me show you how the Bible itself looks back on this moment in Joseph's story. Keep in mind what it would be like to be Joseph. To be on a camel with some Midianite traders headed to Egypt, having just been sold by your own family. In that moment, I promise you, Joseph has no idea what's going on. And it feels to him like God is nowhere here. The reason the narrator doesn't talk about God at all in this chapter is because he wants you as a reader to feel that. Where is God? What's going on here? But I want you to notice how the Bible looks back on this story. And so keeping your finger in Genesis 37, I want you to turn over to Psalm 105. Psalm 105, which is written after this story has reached its conclusion. And we're going to just see the psalmist refer back to the story of Joseph. And the scripture is going to interpret the story for us. Look at Psalm 105. It starts this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. This is an invitation from the psalmist to tell of the wonderful things God has done. To proclaim, to sing about his mighty deeds. What are those deeds? Well, this psalm looks back on God's deliverance of his people throughout history. Look at verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. So one of the things this writer in this psalm wants you to praise God for is God made promises to Abraham and Isaac. God made a covenant. He committed himself to this family and to this people. And as he walks forward in the journey of what it meant for God to fulfill that covenant, we come to verse 16. Look at it. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. The he in this psalm is God. God summoned a famine on the land. 
This was not a random ecological disaster. It was the hand of a sovereign God at work. And when God did that, God had sent a man ahead of them to Egypt. That man was Joseph. And he sent him there by having him sold as a slave. The psalmist is telling you, God is not absent from the story. God is present even in the pit. Is God mentioned in the story? No. Do the events of the story seem to reveal a clear sense of God's presence? No. But God is the one doing all of it. God is the one behind all of this. What we really see very clearly in the story of Joseph is the basic Christian doctrine of providence. Providence simply speaks of God's governing or ordering of the world. The doctrine of providence means God is not a God who got it all started and then sort of stepped back from it and you're like, well, I hope that all goes well. That's the God of deism, a God who gets everything started and then takes his hands off the wheel and says, well, we'll see where this goes. That's not the God of the Bible. Providence, the doctrine of providence, teaches us that Scripture proclaims a God who is active in the world, who orders and governs what happens in his creation. And that's what the story of Joseph is teaching us. It's one of the classic texts in the Bible on the doctrine of providence. I want to read to you one of our classic confessions in the Protestant tradition. As you know, in the history of the church, as we proclaim every Sunday, the church has gathered various creeds and professions of faith to use for Christians to describe. What do we believe about God? And in the Belgic Confession, written in 1561, there's a treatment of the doctrine of providence. I want to read you a couple paragraphs from that great confession of faith. The framers of that confession write this. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. That's a basic statement of the truth of providence. Hey, God doesn't abandon the world to chance. God leads and governs with his orderly arrangement. That's just stating what we believe. Now, listen to the second paragraph and what they say. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what God does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what God shows us in the Word. What these fathers and mothers in the faith are telling you is this. You as a Christian need to believe in the doctrine of providence, and you also need to have the kind of humility that says you don't understand it. There are things about God's ordering and governing of the world that surpass human understanding, and they're beyond our ability to comprehend. And a right response is to say, I don't know. I don't understand all the whys of what God is up to. He has just judgments that are hidden from us. I'm content to be Christ's disciple and to obey the word of God. 
Isn't that a beautiful juxtaposition of what we proclaim to be true and the manner in which we hold that belief? This profession of faith and Genesis 37 are reminding you there are going to be moments in your life when it seems like God is absent. Some of you are in that moment right now. Some of you have been there. Some of you are headed for a moment like that. And the question in those moments is always this. Are you going to live by feelings or are you going to live by faith? That's the question for Joseph. That's the question for you. See, your culture tells you that feelings are the barometer of truth. If it feels like God is absent, then that must be true. But friends, the Bible Bible is telling you there are moments when it feels like God is absent. And in those moments, it's not your feelings that determine what's true. It's the character of God and the word of God and the covenant faithfulness of God. God is present with his people even in the pit. William Cooper was one of the most famous poets in the English language of the late 18th century. He's well-known and well-respected among poets even to this day. He was a Christian. He also struggled for his whole life with depression and melancholy. His mother died when he was five years old. He was bullied repeatedly at school. He experienced the heartbreak of a broken engagement to a woman he deeply loved. William Cooper spent much of his life in the pit. And he left us a brilliant poem that reminds us of the same truth the scriptures are preaching, that God is present even in the pit. The poem is titled, Light Shining Out of Darkness. And I want you to notice in these poetic lines how William Cooper does the same thing the framers of that confession do. He he tells us that God is in charge. And he also reminds us how we ought to read and respond to God's providence. Listen to the final three stanzas of this poem, Light Shining Out of Darkness. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. What a powerful reminder. God is his own interpreter. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. There are moments when you will not be able to make sense of what God is doing. But Cooper wants to remind you, God will make it plain. God is his own interpreter. We trust and rest in his good providence. Now, we've already looked back at the Joseph story from the perspective of Psalm 105. But I want to zoom out even further and look back in an even broader canonical perspective. So you've seen that the pit is a key feature of Genesis 37. And this word pit, as we go through the scriptures, takes on an even bigger and broader significance. Look with me, for instance, at Psalm 30, verse 3. 
The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Likewise, Psalm 88, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. The pit becomes a biblical metaphor for Sheol, for the grave, for the place of the dead. In the mind of the biblical writers, Sheol or Hades or the grave is the place of the dead. It's the place where those have passed away are. It's different than hell. Hell is a place of final judgment. Hell doesn't exist yet, at least for our understanding. God is outside of time, so I don't pretend to know in his providence how all that works. But in the mind of the biblical writers, what exists right now is Sheol, the grave. It's a place of shadows and disembodied souls. And spatially, it's understood to be down. You can understand because we dig graves in the ground. And it's understood to be a dungeon, a place that has power, a place that holds you. So the word pit, as we go through the Bible, becomes a picture or a symbol of the grave, of Sheol, of the place of the dead. So in the Joseph story, Here's what's happening. Don't miss this. God is rescuing Jacob's family from the pit by sending Joseph to the pit. How are we going to keep Jacob's family alive? How are we going to keep them from ending up in the grave? How are we going to keep this promise of God from dying as they die? We're going to keep Joseph from going down to the pit or keep Jacob's family from going down to the pit by sending Joseph into the cistern, the dungeon. Joseph goes to the pit so that his people don't have to. And you can see where that's pointing us, can't you? You can preach the rest of the sermon from here. Jesus Christ is the truer and greater Joseph who goes to the pit so that his people don't have to. When you die, friends, what happens to your soul? Well, it goes to the place of departed souls, the shadowy nether regions. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place, he also was buried. He went into the grave. And we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead. Wherever that place is, that's where Jesus went. And in so doing, he broke the power of death, of Sheol, of the grave, so that it can no longer hold his people. This is why Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, in this great triumphant vision of his victorious power, he says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered the power of the grave. He didn't just come up out of the pit, he triumphed over the pit. He holds the keys. Jesus went to the pit so that his people don't have to. And when we believe that, we, like Joseph, can live with confident faith even when it seems like God is absent. Even when we're in what feels like the pit. To say it another way, friends, there are always two pits in your life. There's the pit where you find yourself now the dungeon, the cistern, the low place, the place of discouragement and despair and hopelessness. And there's the pit of the grave. 
And the good news for you in the first kind of pit is that you've already been delivered from the second kind of pit. Jesus has conquered the grave. You're not going to end up there because you belong to Jesus Christ and he has conquered death. And see, when you're in the pit, what you tend to do is to give your circumstances more weight than the good news that Jesus has triumphed over the pit. You might know in your mind that Jesus died for you, but what feels most powerful right now is the circumstance you find yourself in. That's what seems to speak the loudest. It doesn't seem as real that Jesus died for you as the circumstances right now seem. And it's in exactly those moments when we need to remember and rest in the truth that Jesus has gone to the pit for us and that therefore we've been delivered from the power of the grave. And when we believe that and rest in that, you know what happens? The power of our present circumstances loosens a little bit. Doesn't mean we're free from the place where we are, but it means we gain a little bit of the perspective that helps to remind us that this is not what defines reality. You are reminded, as you think on the goodness of the gospel, that God is always present with his people, even in the pit. Jesus has conquered the grave, and therefore God is present with you, even in the pit. That's really good news. And it never changes your circumstances in a moment. Like, notice that what we tend to live for as American Christians is we tend to think this way. If God loves me, if God cares about me, if God's really present with me, he will change my circumstances. That's how I know he cares, is if my circumstances change. What the story of Joseph, friends, is preaching to you is that may not be true. It may actually be in the midst of the present circumstances that God is up to something you can't see and won't be able to see for a really long time. But you'll look back on it and go, oh, it makes a little sense now. And certainly from the perspective of the new heavens and the new earth, things are going to make a lot of sense that don't make sense right now. The sign that God is present with you is not that he changes your circumstances. The sign that God is present with you is that he sent Jesus to die for your sins. He's triumphed over the grave and you will be with him forever. That's the story that's being written. That's what the end of the story looks like. And because that's the end of the story, it's okay if right now doesn't make some sense. It's okay if right now things feel confusing. If right now God feels absent, you're in good company, friends. Part of what I'm preaching to you this morning is just this. When you're in a place in life where it feels like God is not showing up, just embrace that that's the experience of God's people. That's not abnormal. You're not weird. God hasn't left you behind. It's not a sign that you're not really a Christian. It's par for the course. That's what it felt like to Joseph. When it feels like God is absent, the truth, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that God is present even in the pit. And so you can walk forward with hope and with courage and with confidence and with a settled sense of peace, even in the midst of circumstances that are confusing and don't make sense. Now, we have the benefit of the end of Joseph's story, right? And that's the hard thing is for all of us, it's hard to look at a completed story 
and realize that we're in an incomplete story. And so there can be this cynical thing we do where we go, well, of course it worked out for Joseph, but it ain't working out for me. Friends, I'm telling you, this is what it means to walk by faith. It means to say, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. If it doesn't make sense to me, that doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to God. Things make sense to God that don't make sense to us. And because he is good, and because of his providence, we can trust him even in the pit. Let's pray together for the grace to do that. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge the weakness of our faith, and we acknowledge the challenge of our perspective. We don't see things the way you see them. We can't make sense of everything you're doing. And Father, many of us are in a deep valley right now, or we've been there. And so would you give us this morning the grace to hear this story as your invitation to trust you when we're in the pit, when things don't make sense. Father, please remind us of the goodness of your covenant promises to your people. And let us be able to read Psalm 105 with joy and hope. Let it remind us that in our stories, which are not yet complete, you're doing things that we will one day be able to praise you for, even if right now they don't make sense. So meet us this morning in the places where we are fearful and anxious and worried and concerned and unbelieving. And replace that with faith and trust in your goodness and in your providence because of Jesus Christ. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.